Hello, and welcome to the State Department's Global Health Diplomacy podcast series. This podcast will talk with U.S. Science Envoy Dr. Peter Hotez about all things global health, including his new book, Blue Marble Health. As a global health leader, Dr. Hotez currently holds several leadership positions. He is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, located in Houston, Texas, where he serves as Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology. He is also the head of the Section of Pediatric Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez is the president of the Sabin Vaccine Institute, which is headquartered in Washington, D.C. He also serves as the director of the Texas Children's Hospital's Center for Vaccine Development, where he holds the Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair of Tropical Pediatrics. And he's here today to talk to us about the impact of global health on a number of things. Dr. Hotez, where would you like to start? Well, thanks so much uh, for having me. Uh, I think, you know, one of the ways that we can begin is first of all talking about the enormous progress that we've seen in global health over the last 15 years since the launch of the Millennium Development Goals in in 2000. Uh, I think it's one of the most important stories that has not really been told yet regarding the contribution of the U.S. government, particularly the State Department, in having a major impact uh, in global health through programs such as PEPFAR, the U.S. The US President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, such as the U.S. President's Malaria Initiative, such as the USAID Neglected Tropical Disease Program, the NTD programs. We've just recently gotten some very good news, and the good news is coming out of a monitoring organization called the Global Burden of Disease Study, which is based at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle, and, and I'm, a, I'm a small part of that uh, initiative. And this has been charged and funded by the Gates Foundation to really look at the impact of those Millennium Development Goals. And the numbers uh, are just absolutely extraordinary. So, for instance, through uh, the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, more than 19 million lives saved. We've seen a 30 to 40 percent reduction in malaria cases and deaths. And then through the USAID NTD program, also through State Department, we've seen a 30 to 40 percent reduction in uh, neglected tropical diseases such as uh, elephantiasis, lymphatic filariasis, river blindness, also known as onchocerciasis and trachoma, to the point where we're actually talking about eliminating these diseases as a public health problem, wiping out these diseases off the planet. Uh, this is all happening through the activities of the U.S. Department of State. Um, I, I think it is uh, one of the most extraordinary contributions uh, that, uh, you know, I, I, and I don't like to talk in hyperbole, but this is one of the most extraordinary contributions uh, ever seen uh, on behalf of the U.S. government. Uh, is an ama- it's an amazing story and needs to be told. I agree. It is a good news story. And the the overall U.S. government investment in global health over the years, like you said, has been truly outstanding and has had a very positive impact on global health. I, I think the other piece to this is, you know, the metrics are mostly in health indices, but the impact is actually going to go beyond that. So, for instance, these diseases not only occur in the setting of poverty, but there are stealth reasons that 
cause poverty. They reinforce poverty. They're a reason why the bottom billion, the billion people in the world can't escape poverty. Mm-hmm. And, and the way these diseases work is they make people too sick to go to work. They, uh, in some cases, and some of the neglected tropical diseases and malaria actually shave IQ points off of kids. Mm-hmm. So they prevent them from being fully productive citizens. They have horrific effects on the health of girls and women. So they affect pregnancy outcome. So these are a major reason uh, that block uh, economic development. So through the U.S. State Department uh, contribution, we're actually seeing a lifting of people out of poverty. That That's number one. Number two is the very important uh, but somewhat elusive uh, impact on U.S. foreign policy and global security. Uh, these diseases are major destabilizers uh, in, in the world's poorest country, and I believe are actually uh, stealth contributors to things such as conflict and political unrest. So we're having a huge impact uh, on that as well. So this is, uh, you know, it's, it's no exaggeration to say this is one of the most important contributions of the U.S. State Department. And, and credit to, um, and credit to uh, both the past and current Secretary of State for creating and maintaining the Office of Global Health Diplomacy because that's something that's going to pay off and have a return on investment for years to come, both in terms of proving the health of the world, uh, economic development, and, and stabilizing communities. And the State Department is so uh, fortunate to be working with fantastic interagency partners. We work with USAID, um, the Peace Corps, with the Let Girls Learn Initiative. Um, We're working with the CDC, with their global office, with their programs. Um, And as you mentioned, so many of these neglected tropical diseases are um, associated with conditions involving poverty. I'm wondering if you can tell us um, more about, because you've you've interviewed and given so much insight into what is happening with Zika and what we can expect um, in terms of the the impact globally of, of diseases like Zika, well, which well, were not on the radar. Well, well thanks for the question. So um, you brought up a very important point. And the way I'm going to respond to it is by saying that I just told you the good news part of the story, Um, the huge impact of the Millennium Development Goals and the contribution of the U.S. Department of State and its uh, allied partners. Now comes the bad news, um, which is it's like peeling. We've we've been playing now a game of global health whack-a-mole. We've knocked down... Uh, we're knocking down AIDS, malaria, neglect, some of the key neglected tropical diseases. But um, we've also now seen a new commensurate rise in new what I call vector-borne diseases. These are diseases that are transmitted by insects and snails. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't really understand why, but, but here's what we're seeing. We're seeing now in the Western Hemisphere the rise of not only Zika virus infection across the Western Hemisphere, but but at the same time also chikungunya virus infection and a 630% increase in dengue, according to the Global Burden of Disease Study. And then we're seeing across uh, the Atlantic Ocean in Southern Europe the uh, 
reemergence of malaria after it's been gone from Greece for 70 years. Schistosomiasis, the ultimate neglected tropical disease, is transmitted by snails, appearing on the island of Corsica with transmission there. And the reintroduction of dengue in Portugal, chikungunya, West Nile virus in, in southern France, Italy, and Spain. So something's happening in southern Europe. And then in uh, the Middle East, this dramatic rise in the conflict areas of diseases such as schistosomiasis in Yemen, uh, leishmaniasis in, uh, uh, in uh, Syria and Iraq. So, so what's going on? And, and here's where the sustainable development goals have come in now. So yes. we've finished the era of the Millennium Development Goals, mm -hmm. a great success. And in their place now, beginning in 2016, we have these new Sustainable Development Goals. And when I first looked at the, the SDGs, I thought, well, what, what is this? It's, you know, we went from three out of the eight goals focus on health and the MDGs to only one out of the 17. And you had things like uh, clean water and protecting the planet and protecting life on land. Uh, climate change. And the, at first glance, I said, well, is this, is this going to be an erosion of the focus on health? And, and now I realize that's not the case at all. In fact, the, the slend, the, uh, these SDGs are actually very forward-thinking because they actually explain partly why we're seeing this catastrophic rise in Zika and other arboviruses in the Western Hemisphere, what I've just explained in Southern Europe and, and the Middle East. And it has to do with the fact that we're seeing a new set of global forces uh, because these diseases are arising in the setting of the following parameters, uh, climate change. Um, they, you know, this, the climate change is severely affecting Southern Europe, the Middle East, and and uh, many parts of the Americas, including the Southern United States. Uh, we're seeing the impact of unchecked urbanization, uh, human migrations, conflict. Uh, these are all very important. And then poverty is still there. But what we have seen is the nature of poverty has changed. You know, it's not just the older notions of global health of developing versus developed. And the new book that I've written called Blue Marble Health actually points out that most of the world's poverty-related neglected diseases are not necessarily in the most fragile nation, nation states, although they're there mm -hmm. as well. But in fact, they're in G20 countries the 20 largest economies together with Nigeria, but it's the poor living among the wealthy. So what we're seeing now is big impact of Millennium Development Goals knocking down certain neglected diseases. Now in their wake, uh, we're seeing a rise of these uh, very uh, worrisome vector-borne diseases, Zika, chikungunya, schistosomiasis, leishmaniasis, and now uh, we've, got to, we've got to take those on, on under the auspices of the SDGs. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you mentioned the global goals um, because the State Department has the lead for the U.S. government in implementing and achieving those sustainable development goals for the year 2030. It is very exciting. Well, well, here's one of the problems, though, that we face. So you look at a situation now in the Middle East or Southern, let's take Southern Europe, for instance, where we've seen the reemergence of malaria, schistosomiasis, leishmaniasis, chikungunya, the list goes on, West Nile virus, dengue, all over southern Europe. And we've got these forces out there that we know somehow are involved, climate change. Uh, we've got uh, human migrations, people coming, fleeing the conflict areas. We've got uh, unchecked urbanization. We have economic downturns in southern Europe as well. How do you sort out which is the dominant force? 
Hmm. Uh, we don't really have a system in place to really understand this. And one of the problems is our, our academic spheres are so siloed. So the microbiologists and the virologists don't ordinarily talk to people who do climate change and earth science. We don't, they, we, those, those same scientists don't ordinarily talk to economists or political scientists or sociologists because our, our, our academic spheres have become so siloed. So we have to really figure out a way, and I think the State Department's going to have a very important role in this, is promoting what's been an uncomfortable dialogue between uh, different, uh, different siloed areas of academia to get uh, different disciplines working together mm-hmm. in order to make this big impact on, on the new vector-borne diseases that we're seeing now arise in the 21st century. I agree completely. Um, and I know our, your time with us today is short, but I just want to thank you for your leadership in vaccine diplomacy. You have truly been leading the way. And I'm wondering if um, you'd like to comment a little bit about um, your thoughts about vaccine and vaccine diplomacy being um, one way that we can um, relieve some of the burden, the global burden of disease. Well, thank you for that question. So one of the one of, one of the solutions, not the only solution, but one of the solutions for these vector-borne diseases is to make vaccines for them. We need a Zika vaccine. We need a schistosomiasis vaccine, chikungunya vaccines, dengue vaccines. Uh, leishmaniasis vaccines. Who's going to make them? The problem is because these diseases, with these diseases and making vaccines, their return on investment is improving public health and lifting poor people out of poverty. It's not the usual type of return invest of investment that's going to interest the multinational pharmaceutical companies. So as a result, we need new actors to, to do this. And one of the things that I'm doing in my role as U.S. science envoy is uh, uh, one of my day jobs is to make vaccines in the nonprofit sector. I'm the uh, president of the Sabin Vaccine Institute, which is based at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine, where I'm also a professor and a dean. And we're making those vaccines in the nonprofit sector. The nice thing about doing it in the nonprofit sector, we can teach people how to make vaccines, right? You can't walk into a multinational company and say, teach me how to make vaccine, but we can do that. So in my role as science envoy, we realize that there's almost no capacity for making vaccines for diseases that are emerging out of the conflict areas of the Middle East, for MERS coronavirus infection, for leishmaniasis, schistosomiasis, but we can teach that now. Mm-hmm. So we're working now with three uh, countries, uh, Morocco, Tunisia, and Saudi Arabia, and the one that's furthest along is Saudi Arabia, and we've just signed now a large agreement uh, between the Sabin Vaccine Institute uh, and King Saud University, which came out of uh, my role as U.S. Science Envoy. Congratulations. I, thank you. Well, it wouldn't have happened without having the U.S. Science Envoy program and the leadership of both uh, past Secretary Clinton and, and Secretary Kerry currently, who's really been very committed to this, uh, and uh, Under Secretary Kathy Novelli, who's just been ama- amazing in, in providing leadership for the U.S. Science Envoy program. What we're now doing is teaching the Saudis how to make vaccines. We have a, a first cohort of Saudi scientists coming in January 2017, and the idea is to build a parallel vaccine development facility in Riyadh. Uh, and we can't underestimate the impact of what we call vaccine diplomacy on this. Uh, not many people realize it, but when Albert Sabin developed the oral polio vaccine, he didn't do it in isolation. He did it jointly with the Soviets, and he did it at the height of the 
the Cold War right after the Sputnik launch, two countries putting aside their ideology to work together to make vaccines. And I think in that same spirit, we're really working with the world's Muslim countries to uh, make a similar type of uh, impact, uh, both in vaccine development and diplomacy. Our listeners may not realize that you have also talked about the, the benefits of vaccinations as a father. I'm wondering if you would like to share with them so that um, our listeners could could hear just a bit about um, how important it is that children have access to vaccinations as well. Sure. The, uh, the other side to my life is in addition to making vaccines and being U.S. science envoy. I'm also the father of four kids. And uh, my youngest daughter, who's an adult now, she's 24, has severe autism and other mental disabilities. And, you know, there's a buzz out there that maybe somehow vaccines are linked to autism, despite enormous amounts of scientific evidence that there is no link, number one. And number two, uh, the fact there's no plausibility. So one of the things I say in both wearing my vaccine and my father hat is I say not only is there no evidence for vaccines causing autism, there's also no plausibility because autism is a genetic and epigenetic condition that occurs in the first trimester of pregnancy well before you ever see a vaccine. So I've been really trying to be a force to counter all of these notions of uh, vaccine uh, hesitancy. And it's very important to do because just like the U.S. exports Hollywood movies, we're also exporting vaccine hesitancy sentiments. And you can imagine the catastrophic impact if we start seeing vaccine hesitancy in places like India, Nigeria, or Indonesia, where we know when vaccine rates go down below a certain point, measles takes off, and measles is a catastrophic killer disease in poor countries. So we're really trying to also counter uh, um, uh, erroneous beliefs about vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. And that is it's so important that your leadership with the science and the medicine um, come together. So again, Dr. Peter Hotez, I want to thank you for being with us today. And we look forward to inviting you back for um, upcoming episodes in global health. Thank you. I love coming to Foggy Bottom and I love coming to the Department of State. You're welcome anytime. This concludes our podcast interview with U.S. Science Envoy Dr. Peter Hotez, and we'll look forward to continuing our conversation with Dr. Hotez soon. Please share your questions or comments on social media using hashtag GHDpodcast. Please follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GHD at State. Thanks for listening and be well.